Open your Bible, as Gino calls it, your uh, analog Bible, uh, to Mark chapter four or five, rather, or uh, you can go digitally. Mark 5, 21 through 43, the topic this morning, Jesus describes Jairus' daughter as sleeping, then raises her from the dead. The title of our message, Don't Lose Sleep Over Death. Let's have a word of prayer. Father, this text is obviously very powerful, all of the word of God is, but it comes to us, Lord, at uh, conquering disease, overcoming death things that we struggle with all the time. We, we see you as Lord over these things. You are the same yesterday, today, and forever. We want to understand your working in the lives of Jairus and this woman with the issue of blood and how it applies to us today, Lord, and how we can go from this place filled with the wonder of your love, sharing you with others. We thank you and we praise you in Jesus' name. And those who agreed said, amen. Several years ago, Christian author and apologist Lee Strobel commissioned a national survey. He asked people what question they'd ask if they could only ask God one thing. The number one response was, why is there suffering in the world? This week's tragic mass shooting in my hometown of San Bernardino immediately sparked a mini debate over calls for prayer in its aftermath. Atheists and other angry people lashed out against the spiritual sentiment. God isn't fixing this was Thursday's cover headline on the New York Daily News. Another article declared that praying in the aftermath of mass shootings, quote, seems to have been an ineffective strategy so far. The criticism even has a name. They're calling it prayer shaming. And so when people ask for prayer in the aftermath of some tragedy or suffering, uh, these others are shaming them, saying, what good is prayer? Where was God? The problem of suffering is central to our verses in Mark chapter 5. We encounter two people with incurable diseases, one of whom dies. I should say Jesus encounters them, and as he does, to borrow a popular phrase today from Facebook, you won't believe what happens next. <laughs> All right, that's... Save. Uh, one is healed, and the other is raised from the dead. I'll organize my thoughts around two points. Number one, Jesus will do something with your disease. And number two, Jesus has done something about your death. Let's take a look, first of all, in verses 21 through 34. Jesus is going to do something with your disease. We love and universally respect first responders. While others are running away from the danger, they are heading into it in order to save lives. Have you ever realized that God is the very first first responder? When Adam and Eve threw the world into its current chaos by choosing to disobey God in the Garden of Eden, the Lord immediately came to them, seeking them. More than that, he promised to eventually come as a man through one of their offspring to respond to the problem of sin and death that they had created. Jesus came as promised and responded to our greatest need by dying on the cross to provide for all of Adam's offspring the forgiveness of their sins and eternal life. He rushed in and saved us all as we were perishing, especially those who believe in him by grace through faith. Jesus said, if I be lifted up on the cross, I will draw all men to myself. And what he meant was that the cross was sufficient 
uh, to solve the problem of sin for the entire human race. And then we read later that he is the savior of all men, especially those who believe. That's the key. You must believe in Jesus Christ. Any criticism of God's response to disease and death are rendered moot when I see Jesus nailed to the cross to save us. In the remarkable passage before us, the Lord is up to his neck in disease and death. So let's pick it up in verse 21. Now, when Jesus had crossed over again by boat to the other side, a great multitude gathered to him, and he was by the sea. And behold, one of the rulers of the synagogue came, Jairus by name, and when he saw him, he fell at his feet. And he begged him earnestly, saying, My little daughter uh, lies at the point of death. Come and lay your hands on her that she may be healed, and she will live. Before the year 586 B.C., virtually all Jews lived within 100 uh, miles of the temple at Jerusalem, so they all worshipped there. In 586 B.C., the temple was destroyed, and many Jews were carried away into Babylon and held captive for the next 70 years. No longer able to worship in the temple, they established synagogues in every neighborhood that had 10 Jewish men or more. The synagogue became the place of assembly where they would worship and study their scriptures. Each synagogue had 10 leaders who were called elders. So that's why you needed 10 Jewish men minimum because the synagogue was organized around these 10 elders. Of those 10, one of them was elected to be the ruler. He wasn't a priest, but he was a tremendously important man, not only in their ceremonies, but in all civic matters. Jairus had a preteen daughter who was most definitely going to die. There was no hope for her outside of a miracle. And so Jairus humbled himself, went against the teaching of the Pharisees and the scribes, and sought out Jesus. And so verse 24, Jesus went with him, and a great multitude followed him and thronged him. Thronged is a word used only by Mark and only here. It's a strong word indicating that the crowd was close to suffocating Jesus. Now, we've pointed out before how much danger Jesus was in from mobs of people. He sometimes employed countermeasures like preaching to crowds from offshore in a boat. Uh, The crowds would come down to the shoreline and he would be on the deck of a boat preaching to them. But there was nothing he could do here if he wanted to go with Jairus. He'd have to trust his father to protect him. Don't put yourself in unnecessary danger serving the Lord, but if you're ever in danger, you can trust the Lord will protect you. Now, verse 25, a certain woman had a flow of blood for 12 years and had suffered many things from many physicians. She had spent all she had and was no better, but rather grew worse. She was constantly bleeding from her womb probably as a result of what we today would diagnose as fibroid tumors of the uterus. I'm not a doctor, but I did stay at a Holiday Inn once, so let me describe the condition. Fibroid tumors are benign, but they can bulge into the uterus causing bleeding. And by bleeding, I mean hemorrhaging and the passing of clots. The larger the tumor or tumors grow, the heavier the bleeding. They can be painful and cause endometriosis, a condition my stay at the Holiday Inn did not cover. Because there is loss of blood, you would suffer from anemia and weakness. The woman would be uh, pale uh, and sickly looking. 
This is a pretty severe chronic physical suffering, but it involved much more than just physical suffering. There was financial suffering. You're told she visited many physicians. Now, normally people talk about how she went to all the quacks and people ripped her off. And that may be true, but the indication in the text is that she got the finest medical care that money could buy because what's being set up here for us is that there is no human help for her and no hope for her apart from the Lord Jesus Christ. And so maybe she tried all the stuff that people want you to try all the time for your condition. Thank you very much, but... Leave me alone. Uh, and, uh, but she did, she went, to, she went to Sansom Clinic, she went to Stanford, she went to all these places, and no one in that era could help her. She was uh, beyond help except for Jesus. There was emotional suffering. Anyone with chronic pain will tell you it wears you out. It's all you can think about day and night, and it begins to affect everything that you do. Social suffering was a part of this. It's not explained for you, but her flow of blood rendered the woman a social outcast from Jewish society. According to the law of Moses, you could not come into contact with blood and then go to synagogue or temple. You had to go through ritual cleansing services in order to do that. Finally, she was suffering spiritually. Her unclean status prohibited her from attending synagogue services. She was cut off from all corporate worship. Now, you don't have to suffer from the same condition a person has in order to understand someone else's suffering. Uh, But you do have to think about it a little bit. As Christians, I think sometimes we get nervous when we encounter somebody who's in some suffering or some difficulty. We want to make sure that we give them some word of grace or strength. Uh, But oftentimes we speak too fast and out of turn. Uh, People do not need platitudes that they already know. They need a well-reasoned encouragement to continue to trust the Lord. And so we want to minister to people, but sometimes the best thing you can do is just listen, tell people you love them, tell them you're praying for them, and wait on the Lord for those words that he would have you speak to them. Uh, She pressed through the crowd to touch Jesus. Perhaps there are crowds in your life that would hinder you from reaching the Lord. I think of the crowd of unbelief or of busyness, the crowds of entertainments or activities. Press through those crowds, through all the things that might block you from him uh, and, and follow hard after God. Verse 27, when she heard about Jesus, she came behind him uh, in the crowd and touched his garment. For she said, if only I may touch his clothes, I shall be made well. Uh, Jesus apparently dressed as a rabbi, and that meant there would be blue tassels along the hem of his outer garment. Why it is she thought touching Jesus in secret would help her is unknown. Commentators speculate that she was superstitious. I say it's really all that she could do, given that she was not supposed to be in the crowd. And it was the least thing she could do, but still required faith to do it. Uh, And so for whatever reason, this is how the thing is set up. She presses through, thinking that she can get a secret healing from Jesus. Uh, After all, to touch him would make him unclean. Uh, And so she didn't want to bother the Lord, but she she felt like she could get a healing uh, from his garment. 
Uh, verse 29, immediately the fountain of her blood was dried up and she felt in her body that she was healed of the affliction. Now, since this healing wasn't witnessed by anyone, Mark lets us know it happened by telling us she immediately knew she was made whole. He words it in such a way that we identify with her feeling her joy. When Jesus would heal someone with a withered hand or born blind or raise someone from the dead, it was obvious to the onlookers. But when you heal somebody that has an internal issue, this flow of blood, uh, no one really sees it. Plus, she was being healed in secret. And so Mark is careful to give a strong testimony that she was healed. And remember, when Jesus healed somebody, they were completely healed. She didn't just start to get better or to feel better. She would immediately have no flow of blood. Whatever her problem was would have been cleared up. She would have color in her skin, strength in her step. She'd be an entirely different individual, and she felt it. Ever ever feel terrible and then start feeling yourself again? That's the idea here, only uh, to the hundredth power. And verse 30 Jesus, immediately knowing in himself that power had gone out of him, turned around in the crowd and said, Who touched my clothes? But his disciples said to him, You see the multitude thronging you, and you say, Who touched me? Everyone was touching the Lord. But it's interesting, they all denied it when he asked them. I mean, when the Lord, you know, he's being thronged, and inevitably, when he turned around and said, who touched me? Somebody must have said, well, I was right there touching you, Lord. But everybody acted like they hadn't been touching him. They probably pulled away. They must have been afraid he was somehow upset. How sad it is we often jump to the wrong conclusion about Jesus' attitude when he speaks. We read things into his words and into God's word that are not really there. Things like anger and disgust and frustration and irritation. If you talk to Christians a lot, you'll find that many times they phrase things as if the Lord is constantly upset with them, as if he's constantly riding them, as if he's not in love with you as a bridegroom loves his bride. We need to be careful about that. Sure, there's exhortations. We're always being exhorted and encouraged in that way, but the Lord is tenderhearted. He loves you, and he wants to have you receive his words that way. The disciples' question is somewhat appropriate. They wanted Jesus to explain what kind of touch did he mean. I would say that God the Father gave Jesus a word of knowledge that a healing had just taken place as someone in the crowd touched him. Remember, Jesus was fully God. He was the God-man, fully God, fully man. But when he was on the earth, he voluntarily set aside the use of his deity to live as a spirit-filled man. And so when we see Jesus in a situation like this, he is represented to us as a spirit-filled, spirit-led man acting under the control of his Father in heaven. And so he had to be told by his Father what had happened and who had done it. And this we call the word of knowledge. It is a supernatural gift of the Holy Spirit when God the Holy Spirit reveals something to you that you could not otherwise know. And it says in verse 32, he looked around to see her who had done this thing. And so he knew who it was had done and he was looking at her. He was, we would say today, he busted her out. People with the word of knowledge are scary. I never wanted to be around Chuck Smith. 
he told lots of stories about the Lord giving him words of knowledge about people. If you listen to Pastor Chuck's teachings, every now and then, quite often, he tells about a word of knowledge he received, always something about sin in their lives. I always thought he knew something about me. And so people would say, oh, you went to the pastor's conference. Did you talk to Pastor Chuck? No. No. Did you see Pastor Chuck? No. One time he was walking towards me and I dove into the bushes. But anyway. But the woman, fearing and trembling, knowing what had happened to her, came and fell down before him and told him the whole truth. To touch her or be touched by her would render Jesus ceremonially unclean, or would it? When she touched Jesus, she was immediately healed, so Jesus was not violating the law. This is a sticky point for the religious leaders, because you couldn't touch lepers and people like this without becoming contaminated, but the minute Jesus touched them, they were no longer lepers or contaminated, and so everything was copacetic. And it was driving them crazy, because they could never catch him uh, against the law. However, any person in that crowd she had brushed against before her healing would have been rendered unclean, having been uh, come into contact with her. So bummer for you if you were out in that crowd that day. And he said to her, daughter, your faith has made you well. Go in peace and be healed of your affliction. Be healed is in the verb tense of having already been healed. Having been healed, go forth in peace. It was important for Jesus to expose her and declare her healed for at least two reasons. Number one, it would allow her to immediately rejoin society. While it seems she may not have been local, since no one recognized her pressing through the crowd and yelled out, you know, unclean woman or get out of here, uh, she needed some validation uh, that her condition was healed when she got back. And so uh, Jesus was letting everyone know Uh, so that it would spread through that community and other communities that he had healed her. And then second, it established that it was faith in him that had healed her, not her superstition or his technique or tassels or anything else like that. That it was power that was granted to him by God that had healed her. Jesus will do something with disease in general and with your disease in particular. He can heal you. He's the same yesterday, today, and forever. We learn from the prayers in our Bible that it's good to seek the Lord for healing. The Apostle Paul had a serious infirmity, more than one actually, but this one he called the messenger of Satan. He said that he sought the Lord three times to remove it from him. The fact that Paul prayed three times establishes that prayer should be persistent. He didn't just pray once. He prayed more than once, and he kept praying until he received an answer. In his case, it was after the third time. It also establishes that God doesn't always answer prayer immediately. And so we're to be persistent in praying. But most importantly, the fact Paul prayed three times is reminiscent of Jesus praying three times in the Garden of Gethsemane, asking his father if the cup of his impending suffering on the cross might be avoided to which the father must say no. I was thinking about this uh, first service and realizing that, let's say you you were reading the Bible for the first time 
you started in Genesis and you were reading all the way through and, and you were understanding what was going on, the fall of man into sin and the need for salvation and the promise of the Savior and then the coming of Jesus Christ and you see Jesus in the Gospels and then you get to the Garden of Gethsemane and all of a sudden Jesus is saying, Father, if it's possible, let this cup, let the cross pass from me. And you know what? You've got to jump up and say, no, no. Because if that happens, I'm lost forever. The human race is lost forever. There's no salvation apart from this moment that all history has built up to. Jesus, no. The answer to that prayer has to be no. And so we enter into this understanding of what it means to suffer and to die. Now, God must also say no to Paul. Because as Paul explained it, he needed the suffering to both keep him humble for the great revelations given to him and to reveal God's strength through his weakness as he depended upon grace. And so Paul said, God's given me this messenger of Satan to buffet me because I've received tremendous revelation and God wants to humble me. It seems every year one or two or more big Christian leaders uh, fall into sin they don't end well. They started well, lots of great things going on, but they don't end well. And the next thing you know, can't find their books or their tapes anymore. Everything's removed from the radio. It's like they never existed. Imagine Paul the Apostle, the greatest Christian of all time from our perspective. Imagine if he didn't finish well and his writings and his tapes were gone. And we wouldn't have a large part of the New Testament. And so God says, I know what I'm doing. I need to humble you. And, and Paul would go on to say, all I want to do is finish well. And, and he and God had an understanding on that. And he said, at the same time, in my weakness, God will be made strong. I have to believe that when Paul showed up at your church, you didn't recognize him. His reputation would precede him. You'd be looking for a certain individual and then he'd say, no, no I'm Paul. <laughs> no, you're not. You're too little and ugly to be Paul. You're, you're weird, you know? I mean, I just think, I just think Paul was a nondescript, you know, uh, he, he'd been beaten so many times and whipped so many times and imprisoned so many times. I mean, you know, you'd look at him and you'd think, okay, uh, if you're Paul, and then he would open his mouth and the anointing of God would be just so powerful in his life and people would be, they'd marvel. They'd think, wow, this has to be God. And so that's what he's talking about. Jesus will do something about your disease. He can heal it, but more often than not, in the church age in which we live, he wants to bring his strength from your weakness. A few weeks ago, I quoted C.S. Lewis, who said that pain was God's megaphone. Lewis meant it was God's way of getting our attention. And you know what? If someone isn't paying attention to God and is headed towards eternal conscious suffering in hell, I'm okay with God doing just about anything to get their attention, aren't you? If you're not, then you don't understand eternal conscious suffering in hell. It's worse than anything that they might go through on earth. I remember a time I was probably 11 years old. I was riding bike uh, with my brother, Richard, who's about eight years older than me. We were going really fast, racing each other through the neighborhoods. And I was just about to go out onto 30th Street in San Bernardino, very busy street, uh, and um, I didn't see oncoming traffic. There were cars going about 50 miles an hour. 
And the next thing I know, I was in a pile of metal and twisted stuff, not from a car, but from my brother crashing his bike into my bike. We flew off our bikes, our bikes were intertwined, I was bleeding, I was bruised, I was crying. We couldn't even ride our bikes, but it was a lot better than being run over by a car. And so he acted, and it was severe, it was a severe mercy, uh, but it was merciful. Now having said all that, I think that pain is mostly meant as a megaphone God hands to us to amplify his strength in our weakness, giving us a testimony of who he is and what he can do. I I use this idea in a funeral I uh, was privileged to preach at a few weeks ago for a friend of ours down in Southern California. Peggy had had cancer for about 17 years. Every kind of cancer you can imagine. Just when they would beat one, it would you know, go somewhere else. And she finally ended up with brain tumors. And she said, that's it. I'm done with treatment. Uh, I, I want to enjoy my family as I die of cancer. And everybody would tell you that she had the most tremendous testimony of the grace of God, of strength and peace. And, and so that suffering that she had for 17 years, it was a giant megaphone that God had handed her. Uh, to show his strength in her weakness. Are you suffering today? Jesus will do something about it. Pray for healing. And if Jesus says nothing, go on praying. Press forward. Follow hard after him. Don't be deterred by any crowd. But if he says no, you're in great company. And you're set up with a mega megaphone to proclaim his amazing grace. Now, in the remaining verses, Jesus has done something about your death. I sort of touched upon how God deals with your suffering working it together for the good, but I haven't answered why suffering exists in the first place. For me, the answer is, uh, in a word or two, free will. God created mankind with free will because love cannot be forced and remain love. God could have created a universe in which disobedience was impossible, but then love would be impossible and we could not be made in the image of God. Adam and Eve are responsible for the mess we're in. Satan is culpable as well. God, for his part, responded immediately, as we've said. He announced his plan, and he has worked through history providentially to see that his plan was and is being accomplished. So let me say this. If you blame God for suffering and thereby turn your back on him, where does that leave you? What hope do you have to alleviate suffering? Let's say you walk into some aftermath of a tragedy and begin to announce that God doesn't exist. What kind of a God would allow this? And then people look at you and say, okay, so what do you have for me to help me understand why my loved one was killed in a random act of terror? Oh, I don't have any answer for you, but I know God is not the answer. Wow. Man, don't try that. That's that's not going to work. Jesus takes us beyond the grave as he continues on to Jairus' house. Verse 35, while he was still speaking, some came from the ruler of the synagogue's house who said, your daughter is dead. Why trouble the teacher any further? I don't want to get off on a tangent, but this is a textbook death notification. I study death notifications because I have to make them sometimes in my work as a chaplain. Start paying attention when you're watching movies and television, when when people come to notify people of deaths. Most of the time it is so lame. And and people, they don't want to use real plain language. 
And so this, this is what you should do. I mean, it sounds harsh, but you should say, hey, your daughter is dead. So there's no misunderstanding about what you're talking about. At the same time, what a shock to Jairus. He knew she was dying. Her condition was hopeless, but he had hope that the Lord could come and heal her. And now his daughter was dead. As soon as Jesus heard the word that was spoken, he said to the ruler of the synagogue, don't be afraid, only believe. Jesus offered immediate hope. He does that every time and in every situation if we will only listen for him. Jesus offers immediate hope. And he permitted no one to follow him except Peter, James, and John, the brother of James. In this mission against death, the Lord handpicked an elite force to accompany him. And seriously, this is a spiritual warfare. And this was, for whatever reason, the strategy that God gave Jesus as he was on his way now to deal with the death of Jairus' daughter, not her illness. The Lord spoke to him and said, take these three guys and no one else. We must remain sensitive to the leading of the Holy Spirit. We must commit to doing God's work God's way. It's not enough to do the work of God. We need to always discover the way of God because in the work and through the work, God wants to be honored and glorified and not have us take credit for it or be overlooked or anything like that. And God changes his methodology from time to time to stretch us out a little bit so that we see him at work. He came to the house of the ruler of the synagogue and saw a tumult and those who wept and wailed loudly. Funeral customs are just weird. Just admit it. They're weird in every culture. In Israel, when someone died, you hired professional mourners, as many as you could afford. They came with instruments and they were adept at wailing. And I'm sure some people could wail better than others. Uh, And now, being so important to the Jewish community, Jairus would have a ton of mourners who were in full wail mode as Jesus approached. I mean, there were probably mourners there who didn't get paid because they thought, hey, there's going to be a big crowd there. This is my opportunity to show what a wailer I am. You understand, they didn't know this little girl. They might have had some kind of sympathetic reaction to the fact that a little girl had died, but they were there to wail. And and Jesus pulls up, it says in verse 39, why are you making this commotion and weeping? Child is not dead, but sleeping. Critics try to say that sleeping meant she was not really dead, but in a coma. If you want to see people who have faith, critics of the Bible have great faith in this sense. They come up with the weirdest ways to deny the miracles of the Bible. Just when you think everything is safe, they say, oh, this little girl was just in a coma. Hey, she wasn't. She was dead. People know when people, you know, occasionally somebody gets buried alive, but most of the time people know. Well, they do. Occasionally, especially in the olden times, but people could recognize death. And uh, so she was dead, no doubt about it, but uh, let's say he got her out of her coma. I mean, that's still a miracle. So I, uh, she's dead. But although dead, she's only sleeping as far as Jesus was concerned. The writers of the New Testament elaborate on this, showing us that by using the word sleeping for death, you're reminded that death has been conquered. For the Christian, death is like being asleep because your spirit and soul remain awake and alive in the presence of the Lord while your body 
is resting, as it were, waiting for the resurrection of the dead. If you're a believer, you might die, but you're immediately absent from your body and present with the Lord. And they ridiculed him. But when he had put them all outside, he took the father and mother of the child and those who were with him and entered where the child was lying. Non-believers love to ridicule Jesus. Whenever some tragedy strikes, they blame God rather than seeking him. I'll tell you this, if any of the victims of the shooting in San Bernardino were believers, their families alone have hope and the peace of God that passes all human understanding. It's a tragedy. It's terrible. But if you tell me that this one individual was a believer then I don't have to grieve as somebody who has no hope because I know that with their last breath on earth, they woke up in heaven in the presence of glory and they're there forevermore and we can be reunited. No other religion or philosophy or atheism or agnosticism gives any hope like that or in any way. And so I'll stick with the Bible. What can the ridiculers offer? Jesus brought in the three disciples, probably because Jews would require three witnesses to an event in order to believe it had really happened. I'm sure they would criticize, well, she wasn't really dead. And Peter, James, and John would say, oh, yeah, she was. And, and they had to believe their testimony. And of course, mom and dad were there. And then he took the child by the hand and said to her, Talitha Kumi, which is translated, little girl, I say to you, arise. His words were like the words her parents might use to simply wake her up in the morning. He didn't need to shout or to act excited. Jesus didn't get all worked up and get the others worked up. Raise! Raise! He didn't do it. He just went in with these guys and he said, little girl, wake up. Wild, loud, shouting, ecstatic movements, they're not the Jesus style of doing things. I think the Holy Spirit is more a whisperer then he is a shouter. I'm not saying we can't be excited or exuberant. We probably need more of that. But in this area of trying to put on a show for the supernatural, Jesus never did that. In the movies, you know, where Jesus is doing stuff where you always see him put his hand out to stop the storm. And it's, you know, it's this hocus pocus. Jesus is very, I think of Jesus as nonchalant. Be still. Why'd you guys wake me up? I was... I was having the greatest dream, you know, that kind of thing. It's a dream into the second coming. But uh, anyway, verse 42, immediately the girl arose and walked for she was 12 years of age. People, people ask me all the time, so why do, you, why do you have a text that you like to read? It's because, so I don't say stupid things like I just did. <laughs> if I'm just on my own, man, we're here till noon and it's all over. But anyway, they were overcome with a great amazement. Mark tells us she was 12, and that gets us thinking because we've encountered the number 12 already in this story. Jairus' daughter was 12 years of age. The woman with the issue of blood had been suffering exactly that amount of time. The whole time Jairus' daughter was alive, this woman had the issue of blood. Jesus addressed the woman with the word daughter, the only time he ever called anyone by that name, and it's the same word he used to describe Jairus' little girl. Jairus, ruler of the synagogue, was personally involved in declaring women like her unclean and unfit for attendance and in putting them out of the synagogue. It would have been one of his duties. Jairus was now risking his own place in the synagogue by coming to Jesus for help. 
Now he might be put out of the synagogue. And so it's a metaphor within a miracle. Jairus could not help but see the parallels and meditate upon them. For example, he would realize the whole time he was enjoying his little girl, hugging her and kissing her and holding her by the hand, God's dear adult daughter was being shunned and denied all human contact whatsoever. Sure, it was according to the law. But maybe, just maybe, it wouldn't have been all that bad to try to minister to her. Let's say you're Jairus and you get up and you're putting together a little you know, care package and your wife says, what are you doing? She goes, I'm going to go visit the woman with the issue of blood, me and a couple of the elders. Well, what are you doing? That'll render you unclean. There's a big bar mitzvah coming up this afternoon. You won't be able to go to it. You'll have to go through ritual clean. Oh, that's right. We should just shun her and act like she doesn't exist and tell her she's unwelcome and never touch her because that's what would honor God, me being ritually pure all the time. And so you see, the law was the law, but it didn't mean that there wasn't love and that there wasn't mercy and that you couldn't act with grace. And this, I think, would come flooding to Jairus. If it came to me, it would come to him. Now I get to enjoy my little girl again. I get to hug her and love her and squeeze her and do all the things that dads and daughters do at this age. What a terrible thing we've done to this woman with the issue of blood. How lonely, how sad. There's a lot here to reflect upon in terms of our own response to those in need. And then verse 43, he commanded them strictly that no one should know it and said that something should be given her to eat. We might call this aftercare or follow-up. We can't always follow up with folks we minister to, but we ought to at least try in order to see that they get the spiritual nourishment they need. People who criticize God for allowing suffering for some reason nevertheless understand they're all going to die. They criticize God for some deaths, like the deaths of children, but they accept that death is the way of all men. Why? Why accept death? I'm serious. If suffering bothers you, death ought to really set you off. But people accept the fact that we're going to die. Jesus has done something about death and about your death. He's conquered it. You might still die if the rapture of the church doesn't happen first. Not all believers will die. When Jesus comes to rapture the church, we which are alive will be changed in a moment in the twinkling of an eye and caught up to be with the Lord, never experiencing death. I'm banking on that, but, you know, I might die. That's okay because to be absent from the body is to be present with the Lord. Death has no sting. The grave cannot hold you. You're immediately in heaven if you're a believer and you'll receive a brand spanking new resurrection body when the Lord's trumpet is blown, ending the church age. When Jesus uses the word sleep, he captures all of this victory over sin and death. He looks at this dead little girl and he says, she is effectively only sleeping. And the idea is that she's going to live forever and she's alive right now somewhere in the presence of God. While we await either the rapture or our death, we're to think of ourselves as first responders in a world filled with suffering and death. Let others criticize. You and I respond, rush in with real compassion, with real help. While critics ridicule Jesus, they have nothing to offer, no hope whatsoever. We, on the other hand, have everything to offer in the person and work of Jesus Christ. 
The issue here is eternal life. Regardless of the suffering and its magnitude, the real issue is eternal life. Where will you spend eternity? And the Lord has come and he's conquered death. He's overcome the grave. He's risen from the dead. The first fruits of those who will rise after him. We, if we're believers, we're a part of that. Let's rush in and share that love and that message.